Good morning, how are you guys? Good, for those of you who might be new, my name is Jason Coker. I'm one of the co-ministers here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. And we are in the midst of a teaching series on Advent. This is, of course, the third Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting, of hopefulness, of expectation. And so that's what we have been talking about all month as we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ in Christmas. Of course, we'll be celebrating that on Christmas Eve this year. So I hope that you are all planning on coming out and singing Christmas carols with us and experiencing the hope and the mystery of the presence of God in the birth of Christ. We will not have a regular church service next Sunday. So if you want to join us for church next Sunday, just tune in online on Facebook or YouTube. Janelle and I will have a brief Christmas uh, message for you, but otherwise our church next week is Saturday night. So if you can make it, we'd love to have you with us. Today's reading for Advent is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, and it is a highly symbolic passage for our celebration of Advent. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10 through verse 16, says this, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and name, name him Emmanuel." He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come to pass since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." Just join with me in a word of prayer, and then I want to share with you what I'm noticing about this passage and invite you to reflect on it as well. God, we thank you so much today for an opportunity for us to worship together, uh, to pray together, to reflect and savor on the ways that you have brought love into our lives and through our relationships through the encounters that we have with each other, through the ways that we help to meet needs in the community and also have our needs met. We ask that you would bring us into more of an awareness as we move closer to Christmas of what it looks like for love to be present in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage uh, from Isaiah chapter 7 is a little bit puzzling at first. It contains essentially a chunk of a story right in the middle of the narrative. And so if you're not familiar with sort of the bigger story that's going on here, it can be a little bit confusing. It's helpful to know that if you back up in Isaiah chapter 7, that what's happening here is that the king of Israel, Ahaz, is deeply afraid of two enemies that have marched on Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is essentially under attack. And this comes at a time when Israel and Jerusalem have been threatened again and again by their enemies. 
And so Ahaz and the people are deeply afraid. There's also a lot of symbolism in this passage. It might also be helpful for you to know that this passage was written decades after these events, whatever they look like. What happens in the history of Israel, of course, is that the Jewish people, the ancient Jewish people, are carried off eventually by their enemies who conquer them and carry them off into Babylon, and they exist for generations in a foreign country as essentially prisoners assimilated into a foreign culture. And during that time, during that time of of assimilation, that time of exile, there develops among the ancient Hebrew people a kind of culture for what we take for granted today. And that culture is a culture of the written word, the scriptures. Prior to that, their tradition was really an oral tradition. Like many cultures around the world, they told their stories verbally to each other. They shared their stories and passed them down according to an oral tradition. But during this time of exile, they develop this sort of culture of writing everything down, of remembering their stories and beginning to record them. And they do this, of course, because they've been dislocated from their home. This helps them to stay connected to their traditions, to stay connected to their heritage, to remember the God that they worship while they're in a foreign land against their will. And so what's happening while they're in exile is these stories are being pieced together. They're being written down in scrolls. They're being read through new rituals every year. And part of that writing out of these stories included the scribes who were writing the stories and piecing them together and putting these traditions together included little droplets of good news or hope in the story itself. In other words, these stories weren't just a recorded history. They were a way for the ancient Jews to give hope and good news to each other in the midst of exile. And so they planted in these stories symbols and names and phrases and words that not only communicated to them their past, but also brought hope for the future. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. If you back it up to Isaiah chapter 7, it begins this story of these armies marching on Jerusalem It says, in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, in chapter 7, verse 1, these two kings come up to Israel to attack Jerusalem. And then verse 2 says, when the house of David heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, these are these two opposing uh, tribes, the heart of Ahaz, the king of Israel, sunk. And the heart of his people shook as trees, as the forest shake before the wind. Then verse 3 says this, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, who's the prophet in this book, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take heed, this is Isaiah speaking to the king, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. One of my favorite things about uh, the Old Testament is how often the prophets use profanity to insult the enemies of the people of God. So in this particular case, what's happening is there is this symbolism of Isaiah trying to encourage Ahaz, the king of Israel. 
There's an interesting little tidbit in here in verse 3. It says, go out and meet the king, Ahaz, and bring your son, Shir Jashub. Shir Jashub in Hebrew literally means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. And this, is, this sort of thing is all over the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. God tells Isaiah to bring his son out, the son that he was instructed to name, a remnant shall return. Ancient Hebrew prophets were constantly being instructed by God to do these kind of symbolic things, like name their children something that would communicate hopefulness to a people who are in exile. And so just by dropping the name of this son in this story, there is this message coded into the narrative that communicates to a people who are hopeless and in exile that someday a remnant of their people will return to their land. That sort of thing is embedded in the text all over the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament prophets. So let's jump ahead again to our text. Verse 10 says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, now ask a sign. This is Isaiah talking to the king Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, ask anything. Ask anything that you want to provide hope that these two armies aligned against you will not survive. And Ahaz says, I will not ask. What's happening here is that the king, we've already been told a few passages earlier, the king is afraid. The king is facing two armies, not just one, but two armies aligned against him and his people. And it's not just him that's afraid, the people are afraid. So when a prophet says, everything's going to be fine, I promise, now ask God, whatever you want, any sign to show that everything's going to be okay, Ahaz says, I, I, I won't, I can't. And then he gives an excuse. I will not put God to the test. But the truth is, is he's not being righteous. He's just afraid. He's so beaten down, so completely uh, oppressed in his ability to have hope that he refuses to believe that there might be hope. This, I think, is something that we can identify with. I think we have all been in places in our life when we experience so much pain, so much difficulty, so much discouragement, that the idea of having hope was fearful. To even conjure up the idea that things might be better is a risk. A risk that we're not willing to take. Because if we build our hopes, if we build our expectations in the face of what look like insurmountable odds, then our pain on the other side will be that much worse when we don't have our hope fulfilled. Hope can be an extraordinarily painful and cruel thing to hold on to if there's really no hope on the other side of that difficulty. And so Ahaz says, no, I will not ask for a sign. Isaiah is frustrated with him, and he says, Will you weary my God? Therefore, I will give you a sign. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. <laughs> this is another sort of bizarre little tidbit dropped into this story. 
Because remember, this is a story of urgency. Ahaz and his people are cooped up in Jerusalem. There are two armies outside the gate threatening to get in. And Isaiah says, I'll give you a sign. A woman will bear a son. A woman will give birth to a child, and that child's name will be Emmanuel. This is not something that's going to happen any time now, right? Ahaz's response should have been, well, how far along is this woman? Because there are two armies outside the door banging the door down. Like, is this going to happen anytime soon? This is, of course, another symbol that has been dropped into the text. Not really for Ahaz, but for the people who come later who are reading this story, for the people who come later who are hearing this story. The first thing that we learn from this, I think, is that the promise of God is for a new beginning. It's no coincidence, I think, that the sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz is the sign of a new birth, the sign of a new child. Now listen, you guys, I'm really sorry. You're just going to have to suffer stories about my new grandson for like years to come. (laughs) Everything right now is a story about a brand new baby. I, I can't help it. But for those of you who have experienced a new baby, maybe your own or maybe your own grandchildren, you know the sense of joy and hopefulness for the future that it brings. You can't help but be hopeful for the future when this tiny little creature at about six weeks begins to smile. It's addictive when you like talk to them and coo and laugh and meet and, and, and like encourage them and their face breaks out into a giant smile. Suddenly, geopolitical concerns do not matter. You don't care about inflation or whether or not the value of your home is dipping. There's another recession coming. All that matters is Otis smiled at me. That's what hope feels like. Hope feels like the ability to disregard all of the terrible things that might be looming because there is hope for something new. The future looks good. Isaiah gives Ahaz the sign of a child that will be born, first and foremost, I think, because he's trying to tell Ahaz there is a new beginning that's coming, a new beginning that you can hope for. And the second reason I think he shares about the birth of a child is because this new beginning that is hopeful, that we might possibly be able to hold on to, is utterly outside of our control. You don't get to control when a new baby comes. I mean, we try nowadays, right? And nowadays, we like schedule C-sections, so we're a little bit better at it. But for the most part, like, you wait around for that baby to come, and you hope. And moms, when they start to get you know, really far along, go on long walks to try to make something happen. And of course, we can induce labor with the right drugs. But for the most part, this notion of giving birth is the notion of a new beginning that isn't something that you can make happen. This is the sign Isaiah gives to Ahaz, the birth of a new child. The promise of God, then, is for the promise of a new beginning, and it is not something that you can control. There's another clue in here in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall call him 
Emmanuel. Emmanuel, of course, is also one of those names that has a meaning in Hebrew, which is God with us. Hope for a new beginning is not just the hopefulness of a child. It is a hopefulness for the God who exists with us. This is not just relief from suffering. This is not just deliverance from fear. This is not just rescue from our enemies. The hope is for a God who lives and breathes and sits with us in the midst of our suffering and difficulty. God with us. I love the story that uh, the Puerto Rican theologian Carlos Cardoza Orlandi tells of the Puerto Rican disciples of Christ back in the 1930s. Our denomination, of course, is the Disciples of Christ. It's a, it's a fairly young denomination in the history of the United States. And back in the 1930s, there was a collection of churches in our denomination who are part of Puerto Rico. And then a couple of things happened in Puerto Rico. The first, of course, was the Great Depression. That didn't just happen to the United States, it happened globally all over the world, but it especially impacted places like Puerto Rico that because they weren't states, but instead was a colony, didn't get the kind of federal relief that states got in the continental US. And so Puerto Rico was devastated by the Great Depression. Because they didn't have the full rights of statehood, they just didn't receive all the resources and the assistance, and an already poor nation began to suffer deeply as a result of the Great Depression. And then in 1932, the San Cyprian hurricane hit Puerto Rico, one of the worst hurricanes in the history of the island, utterly devastated the island of Puerto Rico. Cardoza Orlandi tells the story of how in the wake of the hurricane, in the utter destruction that it caused, people's houses leveled, businesses shuttered, people flocked to their churches, and in the midst of that destruction began to pray and began to worship and even began to experience joy. And in their experience of joy, their Worship of a God that they felt was with them in spite of their circumstances, a revival broke out. People began to flock to the churches in Puerto Rico, began to raise their hands and sing loudly at the top of their lungs. And by the way, this is not something that white Western missionaries are comfortable with. Western missionaries in Puerto Rico were frightened by this revival that was breaking out. They didn't know what to do, so they literally shuttered the churches, closed them down, kicked the people out, and told them that they couldn't come. This, of course, is uh, not something that could be contained by just shutting the doors of the churches. So Carlos Cordoza Orlandi tells the story of how Puerto Rican churches then began to gather on their own wherever they could, and those churches began to grow, and those churches began to put their lives back together. They began to overcome the circumstances that they experienced in the wake of the hurricane because God's presence with them gave them the ability to hope for something more. And ultimately, in the mid-30s, this group of churches declared their autonomy from the disciples of Christ in the United States and went on to grow and thrive and take their case to the Supreme Court and get their churches back. 
Those churches are still there today. One of the most interesting things that came out of that phenomenon is that breaking away from their mother church, that breaking away from the traditions of the past, the constraints of a foreign culture, new forms of worship began to develop in those churches. One peasant woman named Ramona Alamo became known as one of the most prolific writers of hymns in Puerto Rico. And one of her hymns goes like this, to begin, to begin, to begin anew again. Brethren in Christ, to begin anew again, to begin anew our journey in Christ. O merciful Christ, guide us with your light. Give us new strength to follow you. Let your grace overwhelm us. God calls the church to begin anew. The story of Advent is the story of beginning again, of starting over, of being willing to risk the uncertainty of the promises of a new beginning that comes from a God who is with us. John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says this, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God. It's no coincidence, I think, that Janelle led us through our spiritual practice this morning of savoring a memory of being loved, that it was impossible for me to imagine being loved without being in the presence of another person. This, I think, is what this story is about. God with us, Emmanuel, is the story of how presence is love in our lives. Love is God's presence in the midst of abandonment, just like the churches in Puerto Rico. God's love is the story of faithfulness in the midst of betrayal, courage in the midst of fear. Love in this way, a sense of God's presence, a sense of our presence with each other, is a kind of love that risks the uncertainty of a new beginning that we cannot control. Love is not something that you can conjure or willfully create. Have you noticed that? You can't work harder in order to generate love if you don't have it. You can't earn love if you don't own it. You can't make love happen. Love is instead something that happens to you. Just like a child that comes to us, it comes from somewhere else, from a place that we cannot control. Love, in other words, is a conversion experience. Last week I said that our first duty of evangelism is to evangelize ourselves. And this, I think, is the good news that we are constantly called to evangelize ourselves to. The idea that God's good news, God's gospel, God's goodness is the expression of God's love to be with us in the midst of our most difficult times. So whatever obstacles or weariness or hopelessness you are facing, my word to you today is to be converted to love. Amen? Would you pray with me, God? We thank you so much again for today for this opportunity for us to gather, to pray, to sing, 
to encourage each other, to be with each other, to experience the mystery of what it means to become aware of a sense that you are with us in the midst of our difficulties or in the midst of our successes. We pray, God, that you would somehow teach us what it means to be more aware of your good news as the presence of love in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello. Hope, peace, and joy, and then today, love. What a beautiful message, and, and um, I hope we all feel that. Thanks for joining us today. And if you like what's happening here, I have some announcements that I'd like to share. Book Club is uh, every first Thursday, and so our next book club is January 5th at 6.30 on Zoom. And our book is Living Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh. In it, he explores the crossroads of compassion and holiness at which the two traditions meet, and he reawakens our understanding of both. So I hope you can join us. Uh, join our very special Christmas Eve service on Saturday, uh, December 24th at 7 o'clock, was mentioned earlier, where we'll sing traditional Christmas carols and explore the mystery of God's presence among us in the birth of Jesus. And this year, we'd love to have you invite um, some people to come as well. And there, uh, there are some invitation cards that are in the church. Also, reminder, it was already mentioned, but on Christmas morning, which is a Sunday this year, we will not gather in person. Instead, we will bring you a special Christmas message online at 10 a.m. for you to join from YouTube or uh, Facebook in your own home. For all of these events and more, you will find Connect cards. You can grab a program in the pew or RSVP as always at OceansideSanctuary.org slash calendar or scan the QR code throughout the uh, church. And then we want to mention again uh, the year-end giving campaign. As you heard from Alex, um, it still is continuing, and our goal is $35,000. And as he mentioned, very exciting, we're at $19,211, which is 55% of what our goal is. So prayerfully consider if you can help out with that. And um, I, I just wanted to mention I love the... I've, I've never heard of the practice of savoring, and I would challenge each of us to considering, consider savoring throughout this week as you go about your days um, preparing for Christmas and savor those times that you feel loved. And this concludes our service. May the peace of God be with you. Also with you.